Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Today, the OPP is reviewing allegations of unregistered illegal lobbying of the Premier. Doug Ford has denied the allegations, of course. The Hamilton Public School Board is considering cutting 136 positions for the next school year. Also, the Public Works Committee is voting to look into letting vehicles park in bike lanes during off-peak hours. The issues of this? We're going to talk about those. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The OPP is reviewing allegations of unregistered illegal lobbying of the Premier. Doug Ford has denied the allegations, of course, but the investigation will go on. Uh, to talk about this and a couple of other things uh, that came out of Queen's Park, uh, so pleased to welcome back to the program Richard Brennan, retired journalist with the Toronto Star, who covered Queen's Park and Parliament Hill for so many years. Badger, how are you doing today? Good, Bill. How's it going? Excellent. Listen, I, this, as I mentioned in my commentary about an hour ago at 810, the fact that there's an OPP investigation is exactly why Ron Tavener never should have actually been considered for the OPP job. That You can't have somebody in charge of the OPP, who's a good friend of the person you may be investigating. It just doesn't make any sense. Well, that, no, it was at perfect timing in some ways because uh, you're absolutely right. It, you know, Mr. Tavner, for all his qualities, was, was you know, was just too close to the Ford family. And for, th- for those reasons, you know, having him investigate uh, the Premier's office would have just, uh, would have caused him no end of grief and, and would have not gone that well at the public, let's put it that way. Well, and no matter how good a cop Ron Tavener is, and I, I'm understanding he's he's good cop with a great record, and that's fabulous, but there's a perception there that if, if best friend is investigating best friend, the allegations, first of all, you know, we don't even know if the investigation would have happened. I don't know. Uh, but if it were, there's always going to be that cloud of uncertainty, like, uh, come on, really? Uh, best that this doesn't happen. And, and you know, Ford should have known that, or at least Ford's people should have known that. But anyway, th- that's what it is. Uh, this really stems from uh, this letter from Randy Hillier, doesn't it? Correct. If they thought they were having problems with Randy before, <laughs> when he was in their caucus, you know, he's the guy outside now throwing throwing darts at the, the, the government. And and he, he'll he'll have stuff on him. You, you, I can... You can bet on it. I know Randy, and he's going to cause that government no end of grief while he's there. In when a situation like this happens, and and there was a letter written with these allegations in this, uh, do they our arbitrarily just say okay, we're going to investigate that, or do they do some sort of investigation to try to find if there's any credibility there to actually uh, justify an investigation? Well, much much like we you know we did as reporters. You I mean you you look at the facts that are available to you. And it, it consider the options and, and that, and decide whether it's worth doing a story on. Well, in similar ways, it's exactly that. They look at all the information available to them. They, they'll look what the, you know the government has to say, and they'll look what uh, uh, Randy has to say, and what proof he, or facts he can bring forward, and that will determine whether they go ahead with it. So it's it's really a fact finding mission, for lack of a better expression. But the, the, and that process, I guess, will be underway shortly. So, uh, for the guy that's been in caucus, and I know the Ford government's only been in power for a few months at this stage, but uh, there was uh, some friction between Hillier and Ford during the campaign, uh, certainly after the campaign in caucus too. Uh, is is he the sort of guy that that would just say, okay, I, you know, you want to play tough, I can play hardball too? In a way, he is. He's a, he's a he's just odd dude. I. Like Randy, but he's 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 marches to his own drummer, mm-hmm. and he will, like I say, 
go to every length, given you know what's happened to him being thrown out of caucus, to uh, to make life miserable for Ford and his uh, cabinet and caucus. Well, it's going to be interesting to see just where this goes and uh, and how long this is going to take and what the findings are going to be. Uh, I, I know that even when they did the review about the potential hiring of the OPP commissioner, I think a lot of people were shaking their heads about the result of that investigation. Well, I think a lot of people are shaking their heads on many things, but uh, you just remember, at the end of the day, Ontarians voted them in. And, uh, you know, you just... Sometimes, as the old expression, be careful what you wish for. And and now now we're seeing, you know, they have every right to make decisions, and uh, that's what they're doing right now. And uh, a lot of it doesn't sit well with a lot of people, but well, <laughs> I don't know who who they have to to blame, quite frankly, other than themselves. Well, there's some kind of silly things that are going on. I mean, there's some serious stuff with the the, the education system that we'll talk about in just a couple of seconds here. But, uh, I mean, two of the other stories that surfaced this week, uh, first of all, we're going to get new license plates. Uh, I didn't remember that coming up very much in the campaign, do you? Oh, well, yeah, but I don't remember, I don't remember McGinty saying he was going to change the, the trillium. Yeah. You know, uh, which cost, back in 2006, cost $219,000 for a, friend, a liberal-friendly advertising firm to come up with this redesigned trillium. Well... Who asked for that? Why do governments do this? I mean, we we well, elect them to govern, and and there heaven knows there's a list of priorities, but invariably they turn to these little frivolous things. Is it so they can throw crumbs at, at some of their friendly uh, you know contributors? Well, you know, I kind of liken it to the fact when I when I had to study for tests back in you know in high school and university, all of a sudden I found it necessary to clean my closet out. Uh, you know, they just you're when you. They've got many, many important things they have to do, and they seem to be, you know, engaging in this, like you say, frivolous stuff. And every government does it. I I don't get it, never did understand it, probably never will. And it it just, I'm just thinking, you know, hey, wait a second, I'm pretty sure that this week especially, there's a lot more important stuff to be talking about than, than, you know, redesigning the Trillium or, you know, redesigning license plates. there's a budget. Yeah. There's a budget process, which is the biggest thing that happens in a government every year. And, you know, I, I have no problem with the changing the, the, the license. You know, throw it out to the kids, you know, all the kids across Ontario, come up with a, a, a slogan and a new design. You know, something different. I, you know, quite frankly, I'm, you know, I, I'm tired of what our license looks like. I know maybe I've got too much time on my hands. But I think that, you know, that can be redesigned. This putting is uh, this open for business on commercial vehicles. It's just tawdry. I don't think it's ever going to happen. And, you know, if they do redesign, you know, that's fine with me. But on on the other hand, big deal. Like, why is this this necessary for a government, a new government, with lots of challenges ahead of it, to focus on such frivolous stuff? Uh, I wish I knew the answer, uh, but uh, you know they're going to go ahead with this. And actually, the the license plate thing, I guess, is actually going to be included in uh, Mr. Fidelli's budget announcement next week. So uh, obviously, they consider this to be a priority all of a sudden. Well, if they do what I say, I you know about going to the you know giving out to the uh, students to come up with something across Ontario, I think it, it's that's okay with me. But you know, if they pay some 
some, you know, government-friendly consultant to come up with a redesigned plate, then I'll tell you, I have a lot of problem with that, and I know a lot of your listeners will, too. Listen, we're going to spend some time talking about, uh, well, there was the walkout yesterday, the student walkout. Uh, the announcement about uh, funding, uh, redistribution, shall we say. I mean, the board looks at it as funding cuts, the boards of education. And we're starting to get some numbers now about this. But uh, the walkout yesterday, the premier's reaction to that was uh, was rather interesting. Uh, he just said this was not the student's fault. I'm paraphrasing. Uh, this was all organized, he said, by the union thugs, meaning the teacher's union. And he had some rather uh, unkind words to say about them. I, I guess the question we want to ask here, from the years you've been watching governments in play like this, how important is it for them to, to define an enemy so that their base and their supporters can say, yeah, those are the guys that are causing this? I mean, it used to be Kathleen Wynne, and I guess it will be for quite some time, but now he's directed his anger at the teachers' unions. Well, this is reminiscent, you know, of the Mike Harris days, because Mike said, I mean, you know, I just wish they'd be, you know, uh, this is hardly novel, because Mike said all the things that Ford is saying right now. It's, you know, I, the teachers, it's not the teachers, it's the union bosses. And I, you know, we heard that over and over again. It's, it's not even new. And and he's saying the same things over again, and he's pitting, he's pitting the public against the teachers, you know, or at least, I should say, trying to create a divide. And which, it does work for a while, at first, and then it becomes a problem with, with you know, uh, let's say strikes or walkouts or whatever it is, and then the parents say, hey, enough's enough with this. And I, I you know, I'll predict it right now, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Well, it happened the first two years of the Harris government. Yep. Uh, I mean, you know, when I was... When I was running for office and successfully a little bit for city council, knocking on doors, all people wanted to talk about was the teacher strike. And one was a lockout, one was a strike. I mean, but to the parents, it's the same thing. I said, look, it's not real. You know, don't you want to talk about taxes? No, I want my kids back to school. Yeah. I said, well, talk to your MPP, who was a conservative at that time up on the mountain. I said, that's what has to happen. This matters to parents. Uh, and, and, and if you're going to go to war, uh, you got to expect that there's going to be some pushback. I believe their contracts are up this year. That's so maybe, maybe he's just setting the scene for what's coming up ahead here, and it could get pretty cho- choppy here. Well, he's already telling them to dial back any expectations they have for, with, uh, in their contract. He's, he's already, he's already uh, you know, laying the groundwork for, for that. And, you know, it is... They one thing they did come across, say during the election, you know, many of the things that we never heard of before, but that they were they were going to cut, and, you know, not cut per se, but they were going to you know uh, look after the the purse strings, which means what you and I know to be cut. Find efficiencies, yeah, yeah and, and that's we know what that is, and and they said that they said that off right off the bat. So this is this is what uh, this is what they're getting. Well, and, and I know, because we heard the same rhetoric from the Common Sense Revolution, that, you know, we're not, I didn't fire anybody, no, but if you cut off the funding for the service, uh, those jobs are eliminated. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's the way things are, but, I mean, you can say, well, I didn't have a direct hand on it, but of course you did. It's all part of the process. Well, that's it. You know, Mike ne- Harris never said he was going to lay off 8,000 nurses during the campaign, but that's what happened. Yeah, and it looks like it's going to start happening in the education and field. Teacher, well... First of all, we, we always hear efficiencies, and we, we hear that, you know, it's, 
it's we're going to just we're not going to lose jobs. It's going to be because through attrition, layoff or not layoffs, but retirements, whatever through attrition. But then you know the, the real story starts to come out. I think right now, I think the government's serious what it's saying. They're not going to lay off anybody. It's going to be through attrition. But that, that seeps into the system, and you, you just wait and see. I mean, there's going to be, there's going to be job loss. Uh, how much? Uh, who knows? But right now, we know that they're looking at 30, cutting 3,500 jobs and saving $815 million or whatever it was. So this is the beginning. We're we're just seeing the very beginning of what what's you know. Coming, why why the rhetoric though, Badger? Why do they have to do this? I mean, when, when Mike Harris said he was going to cut social services, he came up with an arbitrary number and said thirty three percent of the people here are are are, are 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 you know scamming the system. There was absolutely no evidence to that. I mean, the statistics indicated there was about two and a half to three percent, not thirty three percent. Yet he pulled that down to try to validate this. And of course, the basis said, yeah, Ford made a statement yesterday about the teachers. Uh, and and said, look, a third of them couldn't even pass a grade six math test. That's where did he get that from? <laughs> Out of his back pocket. I know. Well, this you, you can you can say anything, and and there's a there's a certain appetite, if you will, for bashing teachers. Believe me, it's just not among his base. <clears throat> that you know that people resent the teachers for. Their summers off and their, you know, their, their benefits and et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm not saying this is right or wrong, but I'm saying there is an appetite out there for it, and and they're they're locked into it. That's what they're doing. Yeah, but it's 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 playing one group off against another. Well, that's I, all. I, but you know, that's what politics has become these days. Yeah, unfortunately, it's pitting one group against another. We've seen in the states. We're we're seeing it here. We're seeing it. In Alberta right now, during their election campaign, it's it's divide and conquer. This is going to be a rocky year. I, I mean, the budget announcement comes out next week, and we'll get a, a much more clear picture as to how this government wants to proceed. But with contract negotiations and some of the ramifications of this, uh, just as we had back in the 1990s, I, I get the sense that there's going to be some conflict and some pushback here. Well, I think it's going to be a uh, you know will be a replication of of the 90s we will see we'll see uh, strikes teacher strikes we'll see uh days of action do you remember that oh yeah uh days of action when all the unions would go to one city or another and uh basically shut down and uh take over the streets and, and parade etc uh, that's what i see happening all over again i really do you know history repeating itself Certainly does. Uh, Richard, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again yep, soon. You oh, go. budget coming up. Okay, take care. That's uh, Richard Brennan, of course, a retired journalist who covered Queen's Park for so many years. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, heard uh, bits and pieces, of course, about the Ford government's education protocol and uh, what they're going to be doing going forward. Uh, and, uh, well, the numbers are, are not that impressive, frankly, uh, from our standpoint anyway. We've heard from a number of people on our program here over the last couple of days. Uh, Harvey Bischoff, who's the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, a guest on the program just a day or so ago, uh, warning us about the impact that these cuts are going to have and uh, the number of positions that are going to be eliminated. Whether it's by attrition, whether they're let go, whether contracts aren't renewed, it doesn't much matter. There are going to be fewer teachers. As a matter of fact, the uh, projection right now, the Ontario government projects that uh, they're going to phase out about 3,400 teaching positions over the next four years to try to save some money. 
uh, and that's that's going to be somewhat problematic. Now that's a big number, I guess, but let's let's you know focus this a little bit more on the Hamilton situation because the Hamilton Board of Education is also dealing with this new circumstance now from the Ford government, and uh, they are considering right now cutting about 136 position next year. Uh, many of them high school teachers. What kind of an impact is that going to have on our education system? Let's uh, bring Don Danko into the conversation. She is the uh, Hamilton Wentworth District School Board Trustee for Ward 7 up on the Central Mountain, also the Chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee. Uh, Don, thank you for the time. It's good to have you with us again. Thanks for having me, Bill. Well, <laughs> uh, Chair of the Finance and Facilities Commission, boy, you've got your work cut out for you. They're, they're asking basically now because of these government uh, programs, they, you're going to have to do more and you're going to have a lot less money to do it with and maybe a lot less staff to do it with. Yes, that does seem to be the common messaging that we're hearing from the ministry. Um, one of the challenges, the biggest challenge, I would say, from a finance and facilities perspective is the lack of timely information. So you might be aware that we, we typically have details about what the education budget will be by the end of March. And that allows us to go through iterations of the budget. And as we receive uh, new information, we can make adjustments, we can add positions. Um, in this case, the, the ministry has not released that information. They've made announcements that suggest changes, um, but some of those announcements are still subject to consultation. And we're still waiting. We're expecting the end of April to receive information about budget. So you can imagine that that um, hijacks our budget process. It makes it difficult to make decisions based on real information. And so we have to make a number of assumptions as we, we go through the current steps of that budget development. Yeah, and that's an important aspect of this, this situation. I mean, we've had announcements by the government, but until it's actually passed and, is, and it becomes policy, I mean, there can be changes, there can be uh, some nuances to this that you have to consider. Uh, but that basically puts you in a position right now that you're bored, I mean, Don, where you guys are, are budgeting on the fly right now because you don't know what's going to happen or when. That's right. We, we certainly use the best information available, but in a number of cases where the ministry has not committed to continuing funding that we currently have in the current school year, or where they've made statements about um, changes to class sizes, although those are subject to consultation and negotiation, uh, we have to assume the worst-case scenario. And so that makes uh, the, the numbers that we're, we're looking at approving right now is our baseline staffing, uh, that that's the preliminary numbers that would be used to provide um, teachers and educational uh, assistants, caretakers, everyone in the system, the opportunity to uh, apply for different positions in the system. We need to have that baseline funding approved per our collective agreement timeline. So that needs to go to our board meeting on April 15th at the latest, um, needs to get approved so that all of our staff members um, in the school system can plan and appropriately apply for different positions that, that become available. How difficult is that going to be if, if they eliminate uh, it, it, through the numbers? Let's talk about the Hamilton Board specifically here, not just the provincial numbers. Uh, 80 high school teachers, uh, 80 high school teaching positions are going to be eliminated. What's that going to do to – I understand class sizes are going to go up. We, we know that. They've already said that. But with the quality of education, I mean, it's one thing to say, okay, we've just reduced our bottom line, but are we getting a better product for it, i.e. education? Uh, I'm not so sure you can do more with less in the, in the educational field. What are your thoughts on that? And there has been a lot of discussion about the impact of the reduction in the number of teachers. I do want to highlight that there's a number of different reasons that we would see reductions in any number of one of our any number of our staffing um, categories. So for secondary teachers, for example, um, in some cases we are losing two teachers due to school closure. So so that perhaps makes sense. 
Um, we also lose teachers when we have decreased enrollment, and we expect to have a slight decrease in enrollment um, next year versus what we had projected for this year. So that would be something that would happen in any given year that we would see that reduction. Um, but when we look at the local priorities funding, that's funding that was negotiated two years ago, and it allowed um, local boards to to add staff and teachers and EAs and all different staff wherever they were needed in the system to support our local needs. That funding, we have been told, will end um, when the collective agreements end at the end of April. And that was negotiated centrally. So we are hoping that there's an opportunity to relook at that funding because that is six and a half uh, positions for secondary teachers. And then the other um, unknown is related to class size. So the, the government has suggested that they will not, um, their, their announcements will not result in job losses. And so they're expecting that we should be able to remove secondary teachers from the system through attrition, through retirement. And when we look at our average number of uh, teachers that retire year over year, that's about 35. So right now we're guessing that we have to remove 35 teachers. And so that, that's the bulk of, of the reduction in secondary teachers. But I think the impact does come, um, really, it's, it's linked to class size. Um, it's linked to the number of supports and the number of adults and, and um, healthy relationships that we can provide to students so that they are supported throughout their secondary education. Um, when we talk about class sizes, it, it's interesting because, you know, moving from 22 to 28 over four years, classroom of 28 doesn't sound too bad, does it? Nope. But when you think about what it really means, the average class size of 28, well, it means that we can't offer smaller class sizes for specialized classes like tech or art. Um, it means that when we have smaller class sizes for some of the, the life skills uh, classes for students with special needs where they're, they're in a smaller class for a very good reason, or our ESL students or ELL students, the English learn, learner, uh, language learners, we need to have smaller class sizes for those students. They need more one-on-one -on -one attention. Um, they need more staff support. But when you're talking about averages, if you have a class of 12 and your average is 28, that means um, you would have to have another class that has, goodness, 28 minus 12, I've got to do my math here, over 40 students. Um, and, and when you start to look at class sizes that large, one, can our facilities even accommodate it? You know, does that mean code? Can we load our classrooms with that many students? They're not built for that size. Also, what does that mean for the students who really need some additional supports? Um, the larger the classroom, the less likely the teacher will have one-on-one -on -one time to check in on students. Um, so, yes, you, you can teach in a class of, of 40. Is that ideal? Does that mean quality education? Absolutely not. Well, are you teaching or are you just lecturing? I mean, you know. I, you, well, there you go. We all know about lecture halls. I mean, and, and uh, by the way, even universities are starting to move away from that right now, where they just all sit there and listen. You know, you, you can have 100 people there listening, but that's, you know, it's up to you. And you don't really get that one-on-one. -on -one. Hey, wait a minute. I, I want to get a point of clarification on this. You can't do that if there's 40-odd kids because you've got too many things going on. The other element that I wanted you to comment on uh, that the, this report talks about here is the elimination of educational assistant programs. So in other words, the teacher is going to have more students in the classroom, uh, which is going to be problematic in and of itself. And it looks as if the number of education assistants right through the board is going to decrease. Now, it, it, that's, that's, that's somewhat problematic because, first of all, you're going to have an awful lot of special needs uh, students that are going to need help. I mean, I've talked to parents before these announcements were made, Don, and they said, you know what, there aren't enough VAs as it is, and now it looks like there's going to be even fewer. That's, that's, that's going to put more stress on the teacher in the classroom and more stress on the students. 
And you're absolutely right. Uh, again, that reduction is based on the loss of that local priorities funding that, that has not been um, discussed because negotiations haven't started. Um, and so the loss of that funding is significant because that is where we said we need to add EAs. Um, we know that we have that, that need in the system. Um, we need the additional supports within the classroom, and that isn't necessarily a teacher support, but it's additional adults who can help students in the classroom. So with that reduction, we are learning more information at our next finance and facilities meeting to understand what, what options and what opportunities will we have to put positions back in. So this is, again, our, our baseline staffing. This is not what we are committing to for the next school year. Um, at, from this point, we can only add. We can't take away. So knowing that we've lost that funding, trustees and staff will be looking to see what other funding can we access to, to minimize that loss and to make sure that we do have the right supports in the classroom. And that, that will be our priority. Um, I'm not sure if you heard, but we did pass a motion that just um, highlighted our guiding principles that we will be using for making decisions through this budget process. We don't typically come up with guiding principles year over year. We have budget priorities. We have our strategic directions. But this year, we decided it's really important that we let the public know, let our union groups know, let our staff know, let our students know what we are thinking about when we make these decisions because it is a, a more challenging year. And if, if it's okay, I'll share those with you. Yeah, go ahead. So, one, we want to maintain a student focus. That is our mandate, of course, but we want to make sure that people are clear that we're always thinking about what is the impact on students and how do we minimize it. We're maintaining a focus on special education. So, again, the educational assistant positions will be a priority to look at how can we add, find money somewhere else to support those the supports for our special education students, respecting collective agreements. Of course, we have to do that, but we really want to, our union partners to know that we are working with them through this and not against them. Uh, maintaining our valued workforce, like every person in our system is valued. Um, and so any job losses are not welcome from a trustee perspective, from a staff perspective, and we want to try to minimize losses. And we also are committing to a hiring freeze on any additional management and executive positions. And we, so we want the staff that are they're student facing or that are on the ground, that are working in the education center to know we don't want to have a bloated administrative budget for executive positions. All right. And I know some parents are listening right now saying, oh, my kid's fine. I mean, they're, they're getting straight A's or 85 or 90 percent or whatever. But I mean, there are others that are going to need extra help. But I want to ask you and, and focus because you brought up special needs and, and many people may not be aware of, of some of the uh, exceptional programs and exceptional teachers, by the way, that you have on the board. Uh, the deal with students with special needs. Not every student with special needs can survive in, in, a, in a classroom environment. Oftentimes you have to make alternative arrangements for them. And, uh, and again, since most of the people don't probably have to access that, they're not aware of this. And it's an incredible program. I've talked to parents whose children have gone through this and have actually graduated because of this extra help and this, this extra work that you put into this. Uh, is that at risk? Can you still do that with less money, with, with the, the kind of crunch that seems to be coming forward here? Because you don't want to well, see those, those students get left behind. Absolutely. And we spend, uh, we, we don't feel that we receive enough funding based on our special education needs. So when we look at the number of students we have that are identified that have IEPs or individualized education plans, uh, we're looking at around 26% versus other boards might in, in our area have 12% or 16%. And then those numbers may not be perfect, but off the top of my head, they're very different. And we don't 
seem to receive additional funding from the ministry that reflects the needs that we have in our local board. So what we've done is we've spent an additional, I think it's $3.5 million last year on special education. So we are committed to providing those additional supports. So that could be a learning resource teacher um, who can support staff and students can step out of the classroom when needed and spend some time uh, with a smaller group or one-on-one. That does include EAs. That does include child and youth care workers. And I think they're now called child and youth care practitioners um, that, that have a, a skill set where they can actually collaborate with families um, to help work around what are the needs of a special needs student. Um, th- there's many different staff that, that we use to support students. We also have a lot of professional development for our classroom teachers to, to help give them the, the tools and the strategies to support the student within the classroom because whenever possible, we would like to include them in the regular classroom. And sometimes uh, specific strategies can help with that. So we are committed to ensuring that we, we find additional funds to su- continue to support our, our students with special needs and to continue to support families with special needs. This current... Um, the current details of, of the, the the budget from the ministry that we have are concerning because we are losing some positions based on previous funding. But again, we're looking at options. We're looking at where can we find different funds. We are appealing to the ministry to say we need more. But when when you say you, you want to try to access additional funds, you got very limited resources as to where you can go. Uh, I mean, let's face it. This is, has to be essentially done through the ministry, and uh, there's, there's you can't go knocking on doors. You can't. I mean, how many chocolate covered almonds can you sell? I mean, it, it's it's at the point right now where I guess the question we as parents and as taxpayers have to ask ourselves is: if we want quality education, are we willing to pay the, the price for it? And I'm not so sure this government is. That does seem to be the theme uh, that we're hearing from a number of different announcements. I know we've talked about the Ontario Autism. Uh, program as well, um, we, we aren't hearing that they're committed to quality education. It cer- certainly there's lip service, but the fact is it does cost money. And, and respecting that that is taxpayers' dollars, um, respecting that there's a provincial deficit that they're trying to reduce, education is not the place to make cuts. That That, that is not the first place you should go to. We know that um, students who access quality education are more likely to be successful as adults. They're more likely to get a well-paying job. They're more likely to contribute as citizens. So to think that um, compromising quality education is, is a, a good first step for reducing um, or reducing the deficit, I would say that they, they're looking in the wrong place. But and therein lies the problem. And I mean, we've just talked about your circumstance. Uh, I, the, the, these are boards right across the province that are dealing with this. Uh, my understanding, uh, we reached out the Catholic board uh, to Pat Daly. I, oh, I know you know, and uh, they they haven't crunched all their numbers yet, but they figure they're going to have to lose about a hundred positions, and uh, they'll come back, I guess, in another week or so and tell us just how that's going to impact their board. But it's it's somewhat problematic, and I get that because I, I I know we all heard the warnings from Doug Ford when he was running, and after, just after we got elected that we have to tighten our belts. But that's led to the question, okay, where are your priorities then, Mr. Premier? Where do you think are things that we just, I don't mean that are sacrosanct, but that we have to put proper funding in to get maximum results? I would think education's near the top. Instead, it seems to be one of the first places they've targeted. And that's right. And if I can highlight one, that we've heard from students. Uh, Yesterday, there was a massive student walkout across the province. Students from over 800 schools participated. It was student-led. Teachers did not get involved. Schools did not get involved. That obviously would be a bit of a conflict. Um, But they they stepped out to say, 
look at the changes you're making. They do not seem to be well-planned. You do not seem to have anticipated the, the ultimate consequences of some of the cuts that are being proposed or changes to classroom sizes. And, and students spoke, they were heard, I hope, loud and clear. Um, we really, we're very proud of our students for taking that leadership um, position and, and taking a stand because some of the things that weren't apparent, you know, they're not widgets. We can't just count students and count teachers and, and they fix budget lines. We have to consider what the impact is on the ground. And one of the things I haven't spoken about are the impacts that changes, say, to classroom sizes in secondary school have on student choice and student engagement. So when you reduce the number of teachers, you reduce the number of classes. When you reduce the number of classes, you reduce the number of course options. When you reduce the number of course options, students who are less engaged in education have less ability to access things like tech, like art, that might help them get through school and actually be successful. Um, and so then you're going to see a reduction in graduation rates. You're going to see more students dropping out. That is not acceptable. Um, that, that, that The whole point of our education system is to get all students supported through so that they have the the capacity be, to be successful beyond school. Um, and so we're, we're really feeling that a lot of the announcements coming out have not been thought through. And they're, they're really, they, they need to, to stop and step back. If you want to do consultation, great. Do it in a timely manner. Um, they've been aware of our, our staffing timelines since they were in government. Um, there's no reason some of these discussions and consultations couldn't have happened in the fall. Don Danko, the uh, chair of the Finance and Facilities Committee for uh, the Hamilton Board of Education. Don, thanks so much. I know we'll stay in touch as this unfolds over the next few weeks. Thank you, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, uh, the Public Works Committee voted to let uh, the idea, or at least study the idea, of letting parked vehicles in the bike lanes during what they call off-peak hours. Uh, the committee seemed to think it was not a bad idea, uh, except for one member of the committee uh, who joins us now. John Paul Danko is the counselor for Ward 8, of course, up in the West Mountain, and he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. John Paul, thanks for the time. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. It's Friday, so, uh, yeah. you know, always the, always the best day. <laughs> you can see the light at the end of the tunnel. I get that. <laughs> Listen, uh, uh, just on a philosophical point, uh, why build the bike lanes if you can let cars park in them? I, I, it just seems in Congress. And by the way, I, I, I'm not a cyclist. I, I don't have a bike. I don't tool around here. But I know people that do, and I think I understand the importance of why it's an essential part of community. And I applauded the city and councillors, not this is just one, but past councillors, for making that commitment. Uh, not without a whole lot of pushback in some situations. Uh, why this Why this idea right now to, to say, well, maybe maybe we'll just let the car park in the way? Well, I think that's the the key question there, and uh, I'm as confused as you are. Uh, you know, and it, it comes back to just what you just said. What is the point of going through all this trouble of actually segmenting out a portion of the roadway that's dedicated to cyclists, that's dedicated to active transportation, if you're just going to allow parks to, sorry, cars to park in the in the bike lane? Um, we don't allow cars to park on sidewalks, and it's the exact same principle. And if you actually talk to cyclists, one of the main concerns and one of the main reasons that we build bike lanes in the first place is allowing a continuous network and how important that connectivity is. So if you, you know, go through this, uh, what is proposed to allow part-time parking in a bike lane, it sort of defeats the purpose of having the bike lane there in the first place. So I don't understand it at all. What is uh, off-peak hours for a cyclist? 
Well, it, it, if you're talking in terms of road traffic, I mean, AM and PM peaks are typically when people are going and coming. To yeah, I get that. That's more, work, what we right? call it in this business, morning drive and afternoon drive. People going to work, coming home. Uh, mind exactly. you, hours are different now, but I get that. There's still a larger number of, of volume. But but the bike lane is separate apart. I mean, you know, if, I, if I'm if i one of those commuters or, or people that, okay, at 5 o'clock I'm getting in my car and driving home, the first thing I may want to do is get on my bike and go for a ride after that. Now, well, some guy's parked in the bike lane. I can't do it. Exactly, and, and I think there's a number of things there to uh, to touch on. So, first of all, this bike lane in particular is the Bay Street uh, yeah. bike lane, and there's some pretty main or key uh, features there that people are going to and from. So, first is downtown, of course, but we have the GO station. There's Bayfront Park, Pier Four, uh, the Waterfront Trail, the new Pier Eight development that we're developing on the waterfront. And this cycle track goes all the way from Aberdeen to the waterfront. It's the main north-south route um, if you're on an active transportation, if you're a cyclist between Aberdeen, downtown, and the waterfront. And there's no AM or PM peak for those trips. So if you want to take your kids to the park, for example, and you're coming from downtown or you're coming from um, the south end of, of downtown, I mean, that could be any time of day. So... I, as far as cyclists go, I think we have um, sort of some long-standing misconceptions of who is a cyclist and why do people cycle. And there seems to be this uh, perception that it is people that are commuting or that are, you know, the typical kind of road warriors. And that's a changing demographic. That's that's not who cyclists are. Cyclists are families that just want to go to the park for a few hours and and when we're talking about separated cycling infrastructure, those are the users that we're really trying to target, the people that would not otherwise get on a bike and, you know, ride somewhere um, unless they're separated from car traffic. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, at not everybody that's a, a, a cyclist has got the spandex outfit and, and the racing stuff and everything else. I mean, we see them all the time, and God bless them, but... Uh, there's also people that rent Sobe bikes, uh, you know, that, that just want to go for a ride on a, on a, an evening or something like this, and you're making it prohibitive. Now, I've talked to over the years, especially during the debate about these uh, these bike lanes, That uh, and let's face it, even some of your council colleagues have been pushing back pretty extremely about these. Uh, but when I talk to some people, I say, look, and I say, well, why don't you cycle? And they say, well, I'm, 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 I'm nervous because, you know, the, well, we have signs that say share the road. Yeah, but they don't. Uh, you get a little nervous when you've got a you know a, a car or a truck or something up coming up from behind you. You don't know that they're going to give you enough room. That's why these bike lanes were such a great idea. As a matter of fact, I like to see more of them, and I like to see protection on them, like you've done in some instances like this. But having a, a vehicle parked there, uh, where where's the cyclist supposed to go? Out into traffic. That's right. And to just touch a little bit further on that earlier point, so there, there's kind of three different groups of cyclists. There's the confident cyclists who will ride in traffic, and it's no problem for them to, if there's a vehicle parked, they'll just go around. But the, by far the biggest group is those cautious cyclists, the, cyclists, the people that um, are just making an interneighborhood trip back and forth. And having that continuous bike lane where they know they're safe, where they know they have a continuous route, that is the key to getting those people to choose to take a bike and in, instead of getting in their car and driving. And again, with this particular bike lane on Bay Street, um, I believe the number that we heard from staff was 28,000 uh, cycling trips. And like that is a pretty significant number. And if all of those people on bikes instead were driving to wherever they're coming and going from, um, 
if we're talking about parking, those were people that would otherwise need to park somewhere. So um, it, it just, this whole thing about parking and bike lanes just does not make sense from, for me anyway from, from any angle. Maybe we should back up a little bit. Why this idea in the first place? Who, who brought this up and why were they even thinking about doing this? Well, there's a, there's a property owner who owns, uh, I believe it's a rental property um, on the stretch of Bay Street where it's fairly narrow. And because of the, the narrowness of the, the roadway cross section, uh, they were not able to incorporate two lanes of traffic plus uh, north-south bike lanes and roadside parking. So I believe the, the, the crux of his complaint is that he can no longer park right directly in front of his, uh, his rental property to deliver or pick up things. So that's where the complaint is, is sprung out of. It's the, uh, the motion by Councillor Farr was to send this to uh, the cycling committee for their review. Um, but to be honest, I, I really don't see the point because it's, it's not safe to have vehicles parked in a bike lane, and it, it just does not make sense. There's no on-site parking on this property? Well, that's the thing. Uh, there is. So th- this, prop- this particular property owner has a... Um, has a he went to the committee of adjustment to get approval for a curb cut. He has approved boulevard parking and uh, a parking space, so he does have a driveway, um, which again, it, you know, it just makes it further. It makes no sense. So, so he's 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 accommodated then. I mean, you've already the city and, and the committee of adjustments already made the accommodation for this this individual. Yes, exactly. So he he does have a parking spot on site um, that he could use if he was so inclined. Um, but I guess, you know, it's very important for him to be able to park on the road for whatever his reasons are. At whose peril? I guess that's the question. I don't know who we're talking about here. So, but I mean, you know, if, if you've got the parking and, and all of a sudden you say, yeah, but sometimes I just feel like I may want to park on the street or that, 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 what, why is that a rationale? I, I, I can't understand this at all. I mean, because you could be putting people in peril. Uh, who are trying to cycle and and all of a sudden have to go out into traffic and it it just seems somewhat problematic. I mean, the, the first question I have is: Are you guys really committed to doing the bike lanes, or aren't you? Or are you just going to every time somebody pushes back say, "Okay, forget about it"? Well, I think that's the bigger concern for me is that anytime these discussions kind of come up, it always comes back to the validity of providing cycling infrastructure in the first place. And every time, I think we've we finally moved past that. Um, we get dragged back into it. And I think there's some, there's some conflict here um, between how we used to build our cities and how we're trying to intensify and provide a, a more um, cohesive transportation network. Because when we're talking about our roads, we're talking about a public asset. And in the past, we used to, our roads were prioritized for car traffic. And if you couldn't afford a car, maybe transit. And our, our perception of how we design a transportation system has evolved. And we're building denser neighborhoods, we're, especially in that area. We're going to see major intensification. And there's, there's an order of priority that transportation planners look at. So the first, uh, the first priority is always to provide walking infrastructure where people can just walk to where they want to go. And then the second is active transportation, which could be cycling, skateboarding, electric scooters, Anything that, uh, that people actively participate in, followed then by transit, and finally personal vehicles and cars. And when we're talking about parking, that's kind of the, the, the least beneficial use of that valuable public space, which is our roads. 
and I know the argument sometimes is, well, come on, you hardly ever see any cyclists on there, which is it really it's it's counterproductive to what we're trying to do here. About as you mentioned about safe neighborhoods and about constructive use of of the space that we've got. I, I mean, I, I've walked down Bay Street sometimes and only see one pedestrian. No, nobody's talking about taking up the sidewalk and say it's, nobody's using it. I mean, we have to put these things there for the usage that's going to be there. Uh, we're heading to summer season. You know there's going to be an increase in, in bike traffic and cycling traffic up and down there. As you say, as, as the waterfront gets fixed and you got some federal money for that, which is a great story too. So there's a lot of things going. We're saying, uh, by the way, come down to the waterfront. Uh, we've done some wonderful things and we've got some wonderful things planned. Uh, but don't don't take your bike because uh, we need somebody to park there. That, that Come on. That's a mixed message to say the least. Yeah, and it, it's a chicken and an egg scenario. If uh, if our roadways are hostile to active transportation, then you're not going to have those active transportation uses. If we provide for it, if we design for it, if we make it inviting for people to to use active transportation, cycling, um, and other and other methods, then they will. And and that that group of cyclists that is sort of the hesitant, cautious cyclist that. It's not, you know, they don't want to ride in mixed traffic. They're concerned about the dangers. That is by far and away the largest proportion of people. And if you make it friendly for them, if you make it feasible for them to, to use our cycling infrastructure, then that's where we're going to see the growth. And to say that, well, nobody's using it now, well, again, I mean, it's time of year, but it's also we're growing, we're expanding our waterfront, and that's exactly where we want people to get out of their cars and, and jump on their bike. So it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's, like I said, it's a chicken and egg scenario, and it's something that when we're designing our communities and where we see the city in the future, that uh, complete streets, active transportation is all part of the equation, and, and we have to be very careful to consistently promote it and not change our minds at uh, you know, after we've already put in something. There's a dangerous uh, precedent here that, that I hope councillors, as, as they adjudicate this thing over the next couple of weeks, are aware of, and I, I'm, I'm sure you are, because uh, I know that it's going to get presented as, well, come on, this is just a one-off. It, this is, you know, it's, but as soon as you say yes to one, you know that another council is going to say, well, I got a guy in my ward that wants the same thing, and if it's good enough for him, and the next thing you know, you're inundated with these things, and don't think it can't happen, because we've seen it happen in the past. If you're going to stick to your policy, stick to your policy, and I, I think that's the message we have to send to council here. And that's certainly a big concern for me, and it's not just on bike lanes. Uh, that kind of waffling and second-guessing decisions that have already been made, I mean, that, that's project management 101. Like, when you, when you make a decision, you stick with your decision, you follow through. Um, so, it, it, like I said, it doesn't, that kind of um, indecision just doesn't just uh, affect bike lanes. It kind of affects, you know, any decision that we make. And in this case, we made a decision to install continuous bike lanes. There's a reason we made that decision. Let's stick with it, and, it, and it's, it's good for the city. So what's the process? Where is it now? So I believe the uh, the motion to review um, the part-time parking in, in this particular bike lane is going to the cycling committee for their uh, review. Their um, not not a study, um, but their you know to, for them to voice their concerns, and then I believe that would come back to Public Works what their recommendations are. All right, and then it'll be dealt with there, and then of course uh, whatever that decision is going to be, I guess we'd ask it before the council. So we've we've got a few weeks here, I guess, before anybody's going to make a hard and fast decision on this. 
That's right. And, and the point that I tried to make at Public Works is, is why bother? Um, there's, there's really no point to creating extra work for our staff and, and just going through these endless bike lane debates over and over. Um, we know that it, it's good for the city to have that cycling lane there. Let's just stick with it. Well, that's exactly the message we thought. Yeah, just stick with it. Uh, John Paul, thanks as always for the time. Appreciate the clarification on this. My, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Bill. Take care. John Paul Danko, of course, the counselor for Ward 8. Uh, sticking up for bike lanes, not the only one, too. A lot of social media reaction to this, too, just saying, what is council even thinking about? Good question. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.